Case number 22-1308, Johannes Lamprecht and Linda Lamprecht's appellants versus Commissioner of Internal Revenue. Mr. DeVos for the appellants, Mr. Brandman for the appellee. Morning, Mr. DeVos. Certainly. May it please the court. Uh, good morning. My name is Lloyd DeVos, and I'm counsel to the appellants, Johannes and Linda Lamprecht. And I'd previously requested two minutes set aside for rebuttal. I'd like to direct the court to the fifth argument in our brief, that the final resolution of the UBS John Doe summons took place on August 19, 2009, when the United States and Switzerland agreed in the lectern up a little bit because the microphone is not catching every. Uh, up, 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 that went up. down. I'm sorry, Your Honor. I'll start again. I'd like to direct the attention to the court to the fifth argument in our brief that the final resolution of the UBS John Doe summons took place on August 19, 2009 when the United States and Switzerland agreed in paragraph three of the agreement between them that the UBS John Doe summons would not be enforced. August 19, 2009 is the date when the UBS John Doe summons was resolved and not at a later point in time when the commissioner, for reasons known only to himself, sent a letter to that effect. Even with extensions of time as provided by law, the limitations period for the commissioner issued notices of deficiency had expired prior to the deficiency notices being issued to the Lamprechts. Even if you agree with the commissioner, which you should not do, that he met his burden of production under sections 7491C and 6751B by having an immediate supervisor approve in writing the accuracy penalty that we're discussing here under the applicable legal standard. And even if you agree with the commissioner, which you should not do, that the Lampress did not file qualified amended tax returns after the commissioner issued the Jodo summons, notwithstanding the fact that they made no claim on their original return with respect to the activity described in the UBS Jodo summons as is required in the Treasury regulations. And even if you agree with the commissioner, which you should not do, that the UBS Jodo summons was a valid and enforceable summons notwithstanding that the only evidence produced below proved that the UBS John Doe summons was not issued for the purpose of obtaining documents and information under section 7602, but was issued for the prohibited purpose of extending the statute of limitations and as an illegal summons and not be relied upon to extend the limitation period during which the commissioner could claim a deficiency from the Lampress. Even if you agree with the commissioner on all these things based on the agreement between the United States and Switzerland as two sovereign nations, the time for the commissioner to issue a deficiency notice in respect of 2006 expired on November 11th, 2013. Why should we accept that date rather than the date that the subpoena was complied with? Because at the time the United States and Switzerland entered into the agreement that they did, uh, they agreed that the subpoena that the UBS John Doe summons shall not be enforced by the United States, not will not be enforced, shall not be enforced. 
That's an agreement between two countries pursuant to the mutual agreement provisions of the agreement of the tax treaty between the United States and Switzerland. As such, it has binding force, and the United States agreed it was not going to enforce 7602 or attempt to enforce under 7602 uh, its right to obtain documents using the subpoena power. The United States agreed that with Switzerland. And therefore, it's not a question of when it's complied with. The United States agreed that it is not going to attempt to obtain compliance. And at that point, we're done. The subpoena has been resolved using the language of... How is that consistent with the statute? The statute says when it is final, when it's finally resolved, when the, uh, when the, when the commissioner has determined that the subpoena has been finally resolved. That's what the regulations say, finally resolved. The agreement by the commissioner that the UBS John Doe summons was not going to be enforced resolved the subpoena, it resolved the summons. The summons at that point in time was not going to be ordered to be enforced by a federal court. And as we've said in our brief, where you what, have- what if, what if I issue, what if there, someone issues a subpoena to another party for documents and they reach an agreement like this that says we're not going to enforce, but they say um, we're not going to enforce the subpoena, um, um, you know, through contempt or otherwise. But if you don't give us the documents within 30 days, you agree to pay us essentially liquidated damages of of a million dollars. Has the subpoena been resolved? Has it been complied with, if if that's the agreement? Uh, No, I would say in that circumstance between private parties, no, Your Honor. But here we're talking about an agreement between two sovereign nations having force of law under the mutual agreement provision of a tax treaty. And as such, it does resolve the subpoena because we're talking here about an agreement that this subpoena has been resolved. There's no condition that I'll pay you a million dollars later. Well, there's a condition that you're going to get documents, right? No, that's I mean, that was that was that was part of the agreement. No, Your Honor. Documents are going to get turned over. No, Your Honor. That was part of the UBS agreement uh, with the United States. The agreement between the Swiss government and the United States was that the subpoena will not be enforced because the parties had different interests, and that's why they were two separate agreements. Well, who was the, the subpoena issued to? The subpoena was issued to UBS. But the government of Switzerland intervened because its interests as a sovereign were being affected. What was happening is that the United States, through the issuance of the subpoena, was asking UBS to violate Swiss law and the Swiss government had issued a blocking order prohibiting UBS from turning over any documents uh, to the United States or to the IRS, regardless of the order of the district court. And the way that it got resolved was that that the United States would not enforce the agreement against Switzerland, but that UBS would turn over documents, and that's what happened. No, Your Honor. The way it got resolved was that the United States made a, a request for documents under the tax treaty between the United States and Switzerland. The Switzerland received the document information request, and Switzerland, using its domestic law and internal law, requested the documents from UBS. UBS turned the documents over to the Swiss Federal Tax Administration, and the Swiss Federal Tax Administration then turned the documents over to the United States pursuant to the terms of the tax treaty. There was no direct disclosure of documents from UBS to the United States. That did not take place. 
And that's also important in the context of the extension of the statute of limitations. Because if the United States is receiving documents under a valid IRS summons, the statute of limitations may be extended. That is not the case in the case of the document. There are formal requests by the Internal Revenue Service for documents pursuant to the tax treaty? Yes, there was, Your Honor. And is that in the record? No, it is not, Your Honor. It was not relevant to the court below. If the request simply said, please turn over the documents that are covered by our John Doe summons. I'm sorry, Your Honor, I don't understand the question. If the document request simply repeated the John Doe summons, then your argument seems to me to evaporate. Your Honor, the document request that was made by the United States to Switzerland was a different document request that did not reflect the document request under the John Doe summons. What were the documents that the United States was asking Switzerland to turn over or UBS to turn over? How did they differ from what the John Doe summons sought? The reason, Your Honor, is because, and it's parts of this are in the record in the form of the excerpts from the Swiss government official report. The difference is that the Swiss government objected to a blanket summons as not being authorized under the tax treaty. The summons was tailored pursuant to agreement between the United States and the Swiss government to only require certain categories of information from people who had bank accounts of greater than a certain size, which met the indications of fraud or the like under the terms of the United States Swiss tax treaty. And again, none of this was narrowed. It was still part. I mean, that sounds to me like that was part of the John Doe summons. Well, Your Honor, it's part of the documents requested on the John Doe summons. But as a matter of law, it is not the John Doe summons. It is a tax treaty request, and that is a different legal matter. They can compromise and agree on narrowing. And when the documents do come in pursuant to the compromise, then the John Doe summons has been satisfied. And that's the I think that's the Internal Revenue Service's take that resolved means satisfied. I understand your point, Your Honor, but I respectfully disagree. The United the government of Switzerland made it very clear in their submissions. And as you can see in the Swiss government official report that the Swiss government objected to the infringement upon their sovereignty of the issuance of a John Doe summons by the United States. They said then they issued a governmental blocking order prohibiting compliance. The Switzerland said that the only way that they were going to permit the documents to be given was pursuant to a request under the tax treaty, which did not violate their sovereignty and which which they had agreed to provide documents under. But again, that's a different type of a document production than production under a summons. The Internal Revenue Code specifically says that there's an extension of time for the statute of limitations in the case of a summons. It does not say and it specifically does not say that there is an extension of time in the case of a document request under the provisions of a tax treaty request. And that's how we understand the tax law to be. There's never been a it's become almost a matter of faith among the tax bar, but there are no judicial decisions on it one way or the other. I understand. Thanks. Do you agree with this statement? The settlement agreement between the parties to the enforcement suit specified the dismissal of the suit would. I'm sorry, I'm not hearing you. I apologize. The settlement agreement between the parties to the enforcement suit specified the dismissal of the suit would in and of itself have no effect on the John Doe summons. I agree with that, Your Honor. As we said in our papers, it had no effect whatsoever 
there was no determination whether the John Doe summons was effective or was not effective. The parties agreed to put that off for a later day. And as it turned out, there was never an issue that came up. Let me, I'd like to turn to the first argument in your brief, which is where I thought you were going to begin your oral argument. And I think there's some strength to the merits of it, that 6662 lists about 10 different penalties, about 10 different accuracy-related penalties. And the supervisor here, when he gave his approval to assess a penalty, didn't specify which of those 10 accuracy-related penalties he was approving. But the district court, sorry, the tax court, did not address that argument one way or the other. Were you surprised that the tax court didn't address that? Yes, Your Honor. I was surprised for a couple of reasons. One, because the assumption in your question is that the supervisor approved the penalty, whereas we pointed out in our brief, the signature of the supervisor happened before. I want to not get too distracted by the other arguments. In this particular argument, because the tax court in three separate cases has said you have to specify the penalty, and the leading case on which the other tax court judges reside was the decision of Judge Gustafson. If you were surprised the tax court didn't address this point, why didn't you move for reconsideration on it? We didn't move for reconsideration on this point because, frankly, after reading the opinion, we didn't think we would get anywhere. Well, I think maybe that was a reason, but maybe another reason is that you hadn't made this argument before the tax court. So it actually shouldn't have been very surprising that the tax court didn't address it. No, Your Honor. As we put into our brief, we did specify this in our last reply brief that was filed with the tax court. And, in fact, I quoted the provision in the brief where we actually raised the argument to the tax court. So even if raising a new argument in a reply brief on a summary judgment motion is enough to put an argument before a court, your argument, and I've got it here in front of me, is very skeletal. It says, Mr. David and Mr. Anderson say what they say. They approved the initial determination without knowing what the penalty was, the authority for the penalty, or how much the penalty was for. The declarations are not evidence of a written initial determination to impose a penalty. That doesn't sound very much like the argument I summarized, and it doesn't sound very much like the argument that you make in your blue brief here. Your Honor, I think all I can say to that is the way that this case developed on the motion for summary judgment was that we received copies of the documentation on which the government relied as part of their motion for summary judgment. They were not produced previously in discovery. We received the explanation of those documents in the government's reply brief. You mean the government's response to your summary judgment motion? No, in support of the government's summary judgment motion. Did that come before or after you filed your reply brief in your summary judgment motion? That came before we filed our reply brief. Why couldn't you make this full argument in the reply brief to your summary judgment motion? 
The answer, Your Honor, is because we were limited by space in terms of what we were what we were doing. There's no other reason for it, and I can't give you one. Okay, and I do think that goes back to the reconsideration. You do, and I, I'm not an expert in tax court procedure, but you can file a motion for reconsideration to a tax court decision, correct? You could, of course, okay. under the rules. All right. No other questions. Um, we'll give you some time. Thank you very much, Your Honor. Um, Mr. Brandman. Yeah, please, the court. Robert Brandman for the Commissioner of Internal Revenue. At, at bottom, this case is uh, very simple, or at, at a superficial level, this case is very simple. Uh, the uh, Lamprex filed a tax return, and then a few years later, after uh, on which they did not report their Swiss bank income, a few years later, after a widely publicized U.S. government crackdown on Swiss bank secrecy, widely publicized, at least amongst tax attorneys and Swiss bankers. They filed amended returns. And it's perfectly obvious from compare, if the amended returns are correct, perfectly obvious that they understated their income by more than 5,000 and more than uh, 10%. You're saying the, the UBS summons, the John Doe summons was widely publicized? Um, it's, I am saying it was, it was widely publicized. At least the government crackdown was widely publicized. Before... But, before they, before the taxpayers filed their amended returns, I, I think it was, but it's it's not essential that they have known about it. Uh, the, right. Yeah. The, uh, the way I read the regulation, what matters is the date of service. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, I'm just uh, given given some background just to make it more of a narrative. Sorry. Uh, in any event, the if the amended return is correct. The Original returns plainly understated income, and they're liable for this penalty. And beyond that, we have a, sort of a buckshot approach to you know many many different theories for why the assessment might not be correct. And rather than uh, march the court through you know my refutation of each of them, as I did in you know 60 pages of brief, I'm really only interested in whether the court finds any of uh, Mr. Voss's arguments compelling. Well, you know, I raised the and then get my numbers right. The sixty-seven fifty-one argument. Yes. Uh, and you know, I, I asked some questions of opposing counsel that you know suggest I think it, it may well have been forfeited here. But you you know you you represent the government and you will have more cases. And at some point, an attorney is going to not this argument. So when is an approval of supervisors approval? of an inspector's proposal for an accuracy-related penalty just says, I approve accuracy-related penalty, i.e., I approve 6662 penalty. How is that approval of the relevant penalty when it could be any of 10 6662 penalties? It's not that specific, correct? This has been a developing area of the law in the last uh, in years, so uh, sounds like it's developing slowly. It's been developing. So it, it, there was no development for a long time after the statute was first enacted, in, I think, in 1998, and uh, development started to pick up around 2015 or so. Tax court started um, taking that provision seriously. Uh, if I am correct, uh, there is current. The Treasury is currently writing some regulations that will hope to 
you know, bring some certainty to this area. But to this point, there has it's only been a, a common law uh, series of tax court decisions, you know, looking at this issue tangentially, and and none of them really support the point that the uh, the approval has to specify the subsection of 6662. I don't think that the, the strongest argument is that it has to name the subsection. I just think the argument is it has to it has to make clear which of the subsection penalties it's approving. In other words, if one subsection were called the inheritance tax penalty, then, and that was subsection H, you know, I'm not saying that it would have to say, I approve a subsection H penalty assessment. It could say, I approve an inheritance tax accuracy related penalty assessment. Right. Currently the, uh, uh, I mean, the overall section is just called accuracy related penalty. There are, uh, I think, 10 different provisions that allow for 20% penalty, and uh, they're not stackable. So they, they can't be, be uh, the penalty can't be more than 20%, even if you know, multiple. Some of them uh, uh, hold a larger penalty, 40% or 50%. I think it would be, uh, there'd be a distinction there, perhaps if, uh, Approval is for the 40% penalty. It should specify that it's, it's that level of penalty or the subsection that imposes the penalty at that level. But among the uh, you know, 10 or so that only impose the 20% penalty, at least among the two or three that are most common, uh, it's, well, so far, no court has held that it was necessary to, to pin that. And there's, and there's no... Uh, there's there's not a handle I think in 6751 that that indicates that it, it should be well I mean get the number right again 6751 talks about um, such assessment so it seems like it's referring to a particular assessment and it, it could be that you look at returns and it's possible you could do an assessment for a negligence accuracy related penalty or an underreporting accuracy related penalty. And if a supervisor just approves, you know, uh, you know, choose your own adventure inspector, pick whichever accuracy related penalty that's at the 20% level you want, then it's not really the supervisor approving such assessment. It's more like the supervisor giving the inspector something close to a blank check to uh, I approve now, and you decide what I'm approving later. In this case, at least, I think the uh, the approval for a substantial understatement penalty should be, should be the easiest one, should always be included. Um, in this case, you could look at the two returns, and it's perfect. You don't have to turn past the front page of either of them. But in this case, there was yeah, later there, a negligence accuracy related assessment. Yes, right? there was. So it, that was that was possible. Underreporting was possible. There was there was a there was a, a later approval of the negligence penalty after the, the examination. I guess maybe did some additional work, but you know, just simply on opening up the thing, you know, you, a, a, an examiner can look at the front page of two returns and know like that that uh, 
the substantial understatement penalty clause. I don't know if I I understood. Are you saying there were two approvals? Yes, there was a later approval for negligence penalty. For the exact amount of the assessment? The approvals don't specify the amount. It was what? Well, the negligence penalty is the same 20% as the substantial understatement penalty. There is a later approval submitted by a different revenue agent for negligence penalties, and they were approved. They were communicated to taxpayer at a later date. There's been a great deal of discussion in the press about the IRS backdating these approvals. Is that an issue here? There's not an issue about backdating of the negligence penalty or the approval of the substantial understatement penalty. There's been argument in this case about what time of day the revenue agent signed off on the initial determination versus when the supervisor signed off. My opponent, my friend, has argued that the supervisors approved before the revenue agent signed. Tax court said the revenue agent doesn't have to sign at all, so it doesn't matter. But as to the specific issue about what time of day the approval came through, I put those approvals under a virtual microscope. Is this a form that the supervisors sign, or does the individual revenue agent prepare this, whatever this form, and give it to the supervisor? This was a form the revenue agent prepared in order to get permission to open up the 2006 and 2007 years. The revenue agent was already auditing, examining 2010, and he requested the earlier returns in order to complete his 2010 examination, and he saw that 2006 and 2007 could be penalized. So he requested permission to open those returns up in order to assess an accuracy-related penalty. The supervisor signed off, and according to Mr. Voss, the revenue agent signed later in the day. But I expanded those forms on my computer to 300%, and I couldn't see the time of day that the revenue officer signed off. But the best answer is the tax court's answer. It doesn't matter whether the revenue agent signed them all. Do you want to respond at all to the argument number five that your friend on the other side made that the date that the summons, the agreement was reached between Switzerland and the United States, the summons would not be enforced, should be the controlling date? I think I heard some new material today. This phrase, the parties agreed the summons would not be enforced. I don't think I saw that in the briefing before. But, of course, the case below was not about enforcing the summons or about a document request made by treaty. That's just part of the background. In fact, the important part is that the IRS issued a summons, and the statute is extended based on the final resolution of the summons. Either, if it's been enforced, one set of dates. It hasn't been enforced when the summons is finally resolved. Regulation gives that date as when all the material has been turned over, and it even gives the IRS 
an additional amount of reason, reasonable additional amount of time to uh, review the material that's been given, given its complexity and uh, volume, to determine that the summons has been complied with. And there, there was agreement all around between Switzerland and the IRS as to when uh, material was was turned over and November 15th of you know, next year. All right. There are no other questions. Um, we'll uh, your argument Thank submitted. You. Thank you for your time. And um, Mr. DeVos will give you two minutes for rebuttal. Thank you very much, Your Honor. Uh, let me speak first to Judge Randolph's question. The IRS has a form, a Form 300. There is a copy of it in the record. It's referenced in our briefs. The IRS Form 300 is a civil penalty approval form. Whenever an IRS agent wishes to propose a penalty uh, against a taxpayer, uh, the Internal Revenue Manual, which of course is not legally binding, says that the IRS agents would fill out the form, submit it to a supervisor, the supervisor signs off on the form, the penalty is approved, and then it's communicated. All of these 6751B cases, not only this one, but all of them that are making their way through the courts, all involve the situation where the IRS agent did not fill out the form 300. In other words, they took some other approach to trying to get uh, supervisory approval, or they did not get supervisory approval at all. That's the evil that 6751B was aimed at. And that's why we're, we see a lot of cases coming through the uh, tax court and coming into the courts of appeal now on this. Is there, are there any other cases, I'm not clear about this, that, are there any other cases in the federal courts, not the tax court, that deal with this particular form as a, a method of satisfying supervisor approval? No. How about in the tax court? Besides, uh, not that I'm aware of in the tax court, Your Honor. No. Um, the only other point that I'd like to make to the court is that normally taxpayers have great difficulty improving the institutional intention of the IRS, and you can't make a claim that the IRS behaved wrongly. This case is very unusual in that because of the affidavit of Mr. Z Dr. Zulov and the official Swiss government report, we actually have evidence of the institutional intention of the IRS. The IRS said to their Swiss counterparts, we're issuing the, IR, the John, UBS John Doe summons in order to extend the statute of limitations. A few days after that, the IRS went into district court and filed declarations saying we want information and documents. Both can't be correct at the same time. Do we know whether uh, uh, what material, if any, accompanied the, the form when it went to the supervisor for approval? We have no information. In other cases, the IRS has submitted an affidavit of the agent uh, who submitted the form. Uh, for example, and that's referenced in our brief where the agent submitted a, an affidavit saying what information was submitted and um, what he was relying upon uh, in order to get, and what the process was to get the supervisor's approval. Uh, in this case, the agent is still in the employee of the Internal Revenue Service. There was no affidavit submitted. We, we don't know whether any information other than the form was put before the supervisor. We don't know. We don't know. That's within the uh, purview of the IRS and we were never able to obtain that information. I meant to ask you one question about qualified returns issue before your uh, before now. 
So, but I'm Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, the original tax returns asked if you had any foreign bank accounts and your clients checked no. And then later for the corrected returns, they checked yes. So that is my, correct. So my question is about the original returns. When they checked no, wasn't that an affirmative misstatement? That was an affirmative misstatement if you assume that it was affirmatively done, and we could get into that. But uh, there have been cases before the various district courts and courts. Of I, don't, actually, I don't understand what you mean. It was it, it, you said it was an affirmative misstatement if we assume it was affirmatively done. I'm sorry, Your Honor. I'm trying to clarify. Uh, the software that accountants use to prepare these forms default to a no answer. There have been cases in the district courts, and I don't think there have been any in the courts of appeal, in connection with foreign bank account report forms, where the taxpayer has said, I didn't affirmatively intend to check that box. The software did it, and I didn't notice it. That issue never arose in this case. And the precedents say when that happens, we, we, don't, we don't blame the taxpayer? Uh, the district courts have held that this is a question of fact, usually in the context of whether the taxpayer willfully intended uh, not to have the box say no or not. Uh, there was no finding on this issue. There was no fact finding on this issue that took place before the uh, before the tax court. But yes, the I, I agree with you. The original tax return that was filed uh, did indeed say uh, that there were no foreign bank accounts, and the amended tax return did indeed disclose all of the Swiss bank accounts. All right. Thank you. We'll take Thank you very much.